0: Greetings everyone, Laszlo Montgomery here, once again bringing you another edition of the China History Podcast. Well, we've knocked off the Xia, the Shang, and now we have the last and final dynasty of China's Bronze Age and pre-imperial period, the Zhou Dynasty. Actually, these three, the Xia, Shang, Zhou, all sort of form a single period in ancient China. Uh, They're known as the Three Dynasties of Bronze Age China and sort of act as the foundation for everything that was to follow. Uh, once the Zhou period ended and the Qin came in 221 BC and unified China under the first emperor Qin Shi Huangdi. The Zhou dynasty ran cover to cover for 790 years, from 1046 BC to 256 BC. This makes it the longest dynasty in Chinese history by far. But there are several caveats about this. The Zhou dynasty sort of went like this. It was founded in 1046 BC by King Zhou Wu, and the capital was set up in the Wei River Valley in Shanxi. Things went well for a while, but in less than 200 years, the dynasty starts its slow, steady decline until it was soundly defeated and the capital pillaged, and this was in 771 BC. Then the capital gets moved east to where present-day Zhengzhou is located. This new period, beginning in 770 BC, was called the Eastern Zhou, as opposed to the one that had just bitten the dust, the Western Zhou. Are you with me so far? It's a 790-year dynasty. First 275 years are referred to now as the Western Zhou, and then the next 515 years comprise the Eastern Zhou. But here's where it gets tricky. The Eastern Zhou is divided up between the Spring and Autumn, or Chunqiu, period, and the Warring States, or Zhangguo period, at 294 years and 219 years, respectively. Now, during this Eastern Zhou period, the multitude of feudal lords gave face to the dynasty, and everyone sort of treated the emperor with the reverence he was due, as son of heaven and all. But the Zhou emperor during this Eastern Zhou period was nothing more than a figurehead and part-time referee between occasionally competing states. So, to call it a 790 year dynasty is sort of a stretch, but let's give it to him anyways. With the Zhou period, we really get to see some hardcore documentary evidence of their times. None of this oracle bone stuff. Less and less, as the Zhou dynasty races towards the end of the millennium, dates get more and more specific and less approximate. You see coins gain in popular use, a bourgeoisie develops, who As the dynasty progresses and the economy expands, thanks to the discovery of iron and the refinement of the Chinese written language, begin to rival the lifestyles and extravagances of the Zhou kings and other royalty. By this time, the world was really starting to crank up. Man's clever mastery of metallurgy allowed his socioeconomic development to really shift into higher gear. The Iron Age in China began during the Zhou dynasty, Uh, The earlier Western Joe kings were in very good company with developing civilizations around the world. Uh, What was contemporary with the Western Joe dynasty? Homer, Romulus and Remus, uh, King David, King Solomon, uh, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, the 22nd to the 25th dynasties in Egypt... And the 26th was basically the last one, so the new kingdom in Egypt was coming to an end. Uh, The Phoenicians and the great city of Carthage were on the rise. This was a time of incredible changes going on in the world. In China, this period was one of the most dynamic periods in the development of Chinese culture and arguably the most creative period in the history of the Chinese mind. These were the days of Laozi, Confucius, Mengzi, Sunzi... The greatest of the literary works revered from dynasty to dynasty were produced during this time. The Wu Jing and Si Shu, which comprise the nine classics, were all produced during this period. Now, when we cover the podcasts on Chinese philosophy, we'll examine all these great works. We'll also touch on them when we look more closely at the Eastern Zhou period in the next podcast. In this podcast, we're going to examine the Western Zhou period from 1046 BC to 771 BC and save the Eastern Zhou, the Spring and Autumn, and Warring States periods for the next show. I was thinking 790 years might be a little bit too much to cover over the period of one single episode. So, we left off in the last podcast covering the Shang as Ji Chang, writer of the Ching, and known to us as Zhou Wen Wang or King Wen organized all the tribes from the Wei River Valley and started to revolt and bring down the Shang around 1050-1025 uh, BC. He dies before he has vanquished them, and his son, Qi Fa, known as Zhou Wu Wang, finishes them off at Muye in 1045 BC. And that's the end of the evil Shang King Zhou Xin and his sadistic concubine, Da Ji, she of the Paolo Zhixing fame, which you might recall from the Sheng Dynasty podcast. So around 1045 BC, these dates are still in dispute, the Zhou Dynasty is established and the capital is set up at Haoqing. It's written the people of the Yellow River Valley rejoiced that such a good and virtuous king as uh, Zhou Wu Wang had come to power. Kings Wen and Wu were accepted as liberators, and it was their descendants, the Ji family, who who served as the kings of this dynasty. After the Shang was overthrown, the Zhou king parceled out the lands and spoils of war to his various kinsmen, military commanders, and to other nobles who had shown their unwavering support. And this is the way it all worked for the Zhou dynasty. Thus began the Golden Age of Feudalism, or Feng Jian Shi Dai, in ancient China. This was the age that brought us all those fabulous, epic costume dramas from Chinese cinema and TV. The deal was, the Zhou kings gave the land to all their most noble supporters in the form of subordinate fiefs, and these fiefdoms were all hereditary, And so it went that in return for this land, these supporters of the Zhou would accept them as their king and would show reverence to all the Zhou ancestors. From these fiefdoms grew the states that would one day become so prominent and even eclipse the Zhou when when the dynasty began its uh, slow decline in the 8th and 9th centuries BC. It was these fiefdoms that evolved into the states of Yan, Jin, Qi, and Lu, to name a few. The Zhou model was that you had the dynasty in the center, ruling out of their capital, and surrounded by all these minor states in a kind of mm, federal cohesion, all accepting the Zhou as the superior entity, with the emperor holding the ultimate prestige as the son of heaven. Now, the uh, earliest antecedents to these feudal kingdoms began during the primitive periods in China, even before the Xia, where the many agricultural communities scattered around the Yellow River Basin would take various kinds of measures to defend themselves and the land they cultivated. Life was very simple back then and cities had yet to develop. Agricultural implements were still very primitive. The smaller or weaker communities would band together or get absorbed by the bigger and stronger ones. Then they'd all join together under a common chief or strongman whose role was to lead the community in defense against the Constant threat of invading barbarians and encroaching on their lands. Now, these chiefs would gradually evolve into princes or hmm, the kind of leaders suggestive of royalty or aristocracy. Way back when, you had as many as 1700 of these principalities. For the most part, these consisted of a walled town surrounded by all the land under cultivation, and then you'd have smaller walled compounds, sort of like suburbs, and everyone would band together for the common defense. In time, these 1700 would consolidate until there were about 55 that were spread out across the cradle of Chinese civilization in northern Henan, Shanxi, Shanxi, Hebei, and Shandong. So, King Wu, he dies within a couple of years of his victory at Muye in Xi'an, and so enters one of the greats from all those centuries upon centuries of Chinese history, enter the Duke of Zhou, Zhou Gong. He was King Wu Wang's brother. He went down in history as the one most credited with the building of the Zhou state and creating all the institutions that would lie at the center of the Zhou dynasty and would be used in various forms throughout the remainder of imperial uh, Chinese history. So, King Wu dies, and it falls on his brother Zhou Gong to act as regent for King Wu's young son and legitimate heir, the future King Cheng. There was competition for the throne in the form of others who also claimed legitimacy and who teamed up with other former Shang elements who had yet to capitulate to the Zhou's supremacy. There was a brief succession crisis, but those opposed to King Cheng were soundly defeated. And Zhou Gong acted as the ultimate regent and guided the young prince until he was ready to take over the kingship. Then, in a manner in which Americans hold George Washington in such high esteem for handing in his sword after the revolution, the Duke of Zhou, who had been given the title of regent upon King Wu's death, after successfully guiding the kingdom through a bit of a succession crisis, also stepped down and handed over the reins of power to King Cheng. For this great act, he is revered in China, and his regency served as the model for all future regencies in China, and there were more than a few. With the power and loyalty Zhou Gong enjoyed, he could have easily usurped the throne and had Cheng uh, pushed aside or killed, but he didn't. Zhou Gong set up an alternative capital to the east, in Luoyang, in 1035 BC, and he is credited with writing the Rites of Zhou, or the Zhou Li, one of the three most sacred of the ancient ritual texts. The Mandate of Heaven, or Tian Ming, was clearly explained. Heaven was not an anthropomorphic god. Instead, it was an impersonal force, the supreme force in nature. An entire code of how to organize the civilization was explained in the Zhou Li. In every source I studied, they took a quote from the Analects of Confucius who showed his reverence for the Duke of Zhou when he said, quote, How I have gone downhill! It has been such a long time since I dreamt of the Duke of Zhou. Confucius viewed Zhou Gong as the ultimate regent. The concept of the mandate of heaven was clearly defined. In the Zhou Li, Zhou Gong wrote that the power on this earth was derived from this supreme entity, heaven, who provided this mandate that was entirely contingent on the virtuous and pious conduct of the holder of this mandate. The king ruled as the representative of heaven, Tian, on earth, rather than as some kind of divine king. Sort of like um, the pope, if I had to find some sort of real-life comparison Coupled with this were the aristocrats and trained bureaucrats who administered the government, who lorded over the peasants, who tilled the soil and lived in patriarchal societies. And the peasants were given civil rights, but they had no voice in government or their fate. You also had a cabinet of sorts with six ministers who looked after the emperor and his affairs and oversaw all the rites and rituals of the religion. And They also held responsibility for war and all the preparations for war, the administration of justice, and organizing public works. In theory, the Zhou Li was the perfect code on both conduct and government. So, King Cheng ruled for 30 years, from 1035 to 1003 BC, and was followed by his son, who went down in history as King Kang, not King Kong. If Confucius had become king, he'd be King Kong, since he was from the House of Kong. But King Kang... Ruled from 1003 to 978 BC, and this period saw the Western Zhou at its height. But with the next two kings, the Zhou hmm, sort of hits the skids. First came King Zhao, who tried to subdue the mighty Chu state to the south and ended up dying in that ill fated war in 957 BC. He was followed by King Mu, who reigned until 918 BC. We're now in the final millennium BC here, and it was during this time that ancient China's literary culture starts to take off. The Shang left most of their historical record on oracle bones and tortoise shells. The Zhou, they preferred bronze as their substrate of choice. These Zhou bronzes constituted the treasure trove of records and learning that survived to modern times. So we're now in 841 BC. That's where recorded history in China begins. It's in this year, 841 BC, on a certain date, that an eclipse was mentioned on a specific day that historians, mathematicians, and scientists have been able to positively trace. This eclipse was mentioned in conjunction with an account of a battle where King Li of Zhou, who ruled from 878 to 828 BC, was soundly defeated and driven from power during a popular revolt that ushered in a new regency for a while. This is the first truly confirmed date in the long history of China. Everything up till now was sort of ballpark at best. By this time, the Zhou rituals were continuing to develop. The Bronzes became grander and more magnificent to keep up with the scale and the complexity of all these rituals. You started to see more and more of the famous Zhou dynasty bells. These were tuned bells made from bronze. By this time, the characteristics of what we come to know as the Chinese gentleman, had evolved into a very strict code of conduct. The code of manners, ceremonies, and the strict code of honor had been firmly established. In fact, it became so strict that it actually became sort of a religion of the ancient Chinese aristocracy and the officials at the court. During the 9th century BC, writing had continued to develop, and we begin to see more and more Chinese characters that are recognizable today as opposed to what the Shang left us. All the Shang characters found on the oracle bones were in a very archaic form, and not many of them were recognizable to the eye that's educated in this amazing written script. As writing evolved, it allowed the Zhou rulers to better project power through the magic of communication. In 860 BC, the Chu invade the Zhou territory unsuccessfully, and try again in 855 with more success. By now, there were starting to be more and more incursions into the Zhou territory, from all these nasty hordes coming out of the steppes of western China. In 827, King Xuan fought back aggressively and won back some lost territory. But it was some heavy-handed tactics taken by the Zhou king in the state of Lu in present-day Shandong province that proved to be the dynasty's undoing. From this point on, as stated in Sima Qian's Shi Ji, No one looked to the Zhou any further as the great power that it had once been. What the Holy Roman Emperor was to Europe, so the Zhou Emperors had become. By 781 BC, the Zhou is definitely nosediving. He had a series of earthquakes, solar and lunar eclipses that in those days offered irrefutable proof that the mandate of heaven had been lost. All it took was, of course, one venal and extravagant emperor to bring everything to a crashing end. Enter King Yo, Zhou Yo Wang, and of course his concubine, who was said to be one of the most beautiful women in Chinese history, Bao Si. King Yo just couldn't get this concubine to smile, or even act nice around him. But alas, he found he could do something that just provided endless amusement to concubine Bao Si. He figured out that if he raised the alarm in the palace to warn the army that they were being attacked, Bao Su would just giggle and coo with pleasure, watching all the soldiers assembling and doing their thing after the alarm was raised. King Yo did this a few times or several times, who knows, and each time he made chumps out of the soldiers and their commanders. So like the boy who cried wolf, when the Yuan barbarians attacked the capital in seven seventy one BC, they refused to rise to the alarm, and the king was killed, and the capital ransacked and destroyed. And that, my friends, was the end of the Zhou Dynasty, or what became known as the Western Zhou Dynasty. From that point on, the capital was moved eastward to Zhengzhou, and in 770 BC, the Eastern Zhou started. Now, the Eastern Zhou, well, it's included as part of the entirety of the Zhou Dynasty because, for all intents and purposes, the Zhou Emperor still lived in the capital and did his emperor thing, carrying out the duties as the son of heaven. But he had absolutely no power outside of the capital, and all these vassal states had developed into kingdoms in their own right. The major players of the Eastern Zhou period were not the emperors as much as the emerging states themselves and their various leaders. Chinese culture takes center stage during the Eastern Zhou, and we'll take a look at that next week when we cover that period. For now, this is your humble narrator and host, Laszlo Montgomery, wishing you a fond adieu, not from lovely Claremont, California, but this time from the town of Woburn, Massachusetts. I'm here on business and happy to say I'm heading back to beautiful Claremont tomorrow. I'll be flying back to Ontario International Airport, the intelligent and stress-free alternative to the horror that is LAX, Join us each week here at the China History Podcast as we bring you a new and interesting topic from the annals of Chinese history. Feel free to visit the website at Chinahistorypodcast.com. Comments and questions are always welcome. Take care, everyone.